0: 1 Samuel 1, from verse 1 to 20. There was a certain man from Ramathan, a Zufite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroam, the son of Elohi, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other Penina. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of his meat to his wife Peninnah, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking at Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now, Eli, the priest, was sitting on a chair by the, door, the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow, saying, O Lord Almighty, If you will only look upon her servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk, and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? get rid of your wine not so my lord hannah replied i'm a woman who is deeply troubled i have not been drinking wine or beer i was pouring out my soul to the lord do not take your servant for a wicked woman i have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief eli answered go in peace and may the god of israel grant you what you have asked of him she said May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they rose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him
1: morning everyone, welcome to some visitors, right up front, eh? it's nice, eh? visitors come right up, ah, I see there's some faces there at the back, I haven't seen you as well, welcome, good, good to see you. We are into our second uh, part of looking into Samuel, but it's the first time we actually turn to Samuel, so if you want to keep that outline with you, you should have a uh, it with you as we um, have a look and finally get into the book of samuel so it's going to take us a while but we have broken it up so if you want to read ahead in the next term we are going to work up until the end of chapter 8 uh, this term and then we'll pick it up next year again um, christmas and stuff like that uh, we'll do something else all right so that's just to give you an idea let's pray father we stand before you we have your word written down by your spirit and as we contemplate it as we look at it As we play with it, as we enjoy it, we pray that you will write your life into our hearts so that we may rejoice and have hope that you actually do care, even when we sometimes are confused about your plans and your purposes. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just very quickly, I don't want to spend too much time. If you read anything about leadership if you are interested in leadership you would know that the general idea of the media is that we have a leadership crisis in the world like we haven't had for a long time doesn't matter what field you go into if it's politics business church society whatever everybody is complaining about the fact that we have a leadership crisis in the world and Every second article in these kind of leadership magazines is how to be a leader. Anyone read some of that stuff? You are a leader. You are a leader. Did you know that? Leaders, lots of debate about what a leader is. Leader somebody who has influence. Um, very simple. So you have influence on people, and people have influence on you. So you both are a leader, and you're a follower. doesn't matter where you sit in the pecking order somewhere along the line you have either influencing people or somebody's influencing you and it's quite interesting to think through who are the people you think are your leaders and who you have followed because you are convinced and convicted by them and encouraged by them and who are the people that you know are supposed to be your leaders but you don't like it's quite interesting you get lots of interesting debate around this issue but what you find fascinating if you are going to go and do some reading on this you'll find that there's lots of articles on how to be a leader you will probably not find too many articles on how to choose a leader because I am my own leader. I don't want to choose somebody else, and I don't know what to look for when I have to choose. And the one thing you will find nothing about is how to follow a leader. Anyone ever read an article on what is the brilliant person to follow a leader? Not likely to happen because we have this uh, idea that leaders are there when there's a crisis and then they must sort it out like we have in South Africa from moment to moment, from second to second, and then there's something to, someone to blame when things go wrong, which is fantastic, which is nice. If you are a leader, uh, you will know the feeling uh, that people will look to you and expect you to solve things and if you don't, they will trample all over you. Um, fantastic reality. If you're a parent, you know a little bit about that. Uh, this kind of thing happens. Um, so there's the crisis in the world. Leadership is a crisis in the world, which kind of brings us to the fact that, as we said last week, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Nothing has really changed. So we were last week. We were back in the book of Judges, and the complex crisis in Israel is that they had two problems. They had no king, so they had no central government, and everybody did what we normally do today: do our own thing. So you had two problems. The king was not there. There was no central government, and everybody did what they saw fit. And if you read, anybody went and read Judges 17 to 21? The stuff that you never get at Sunday school? Don't you want to know what they never taught you at Sunday school? Go and read it. It is horrific. This time, Israel is not being attacked by its enemies, as God has promised he would do to keep them humble. This time, Israel is ripping themselves apart from the inside out. And it is horrific to go and read that. And that's what happens when you've got no leadership and everybody decides that they'll do whatever they want. That's the kind of thing that happens in society. And that's what you see. And what makes it so sad in Israel's case is that Israel was the one nation that had God as their king. God saved them out of Egypt. God made them his own people. God brought them together. God took them through the desert for 40 years, looked after them, cleaned out some of the baddies got them to the promised land, made them enter into the promised land, and they act like worse than the nations around them. So the crisis in Israel is quite huge. And the question starts to ask, when you read Judges, you start to ask, does God actually care what happens to these people? Because it seems like there is just chaos. There's no longer any cries to God for help. There's no longer saying, God, you must send us somebody. It's silent. Everybody's just doing exactly what they want to do. So where is this promise that God has set? So if you go and read the book of Deuteronomy, you've got to know your Bible. You've got to go backwards in order to go forward. Deuteronomy says, God says, I will bless you. I will make sure that you will be a blessing to the world. At this stage, they are a curse to themselves and a curse to all the nations around them. So... What is going on? Why is God not just... I mean, isn't God absolutely sovereign? Can't He just step in and sort it all out? Isn't that what you want? Sometimes you put on the TV, and you see the atrocious things people do, and you think, if God would just step in and just, Take Him out. Just sort it all out. Where is all of this going? What's going on here? So that's the background of the story, what we looked at last week in a little bit more detail. Here we start... In the middle of this enormous crisis, the story starts by telling us of a certain man who is grandly obscure, and he has a very unfortunate domestic situation. God's answer to the national and moral and spiritual crisis in Israel is to take us to a man that has got no name, because you'll not read about him anywhere else in the Bible, And the fact that he had two wives, the first wife was barren, and the second one was fruitful. And they loved one another greatly. So can you see? Elkanah and his wives are a little small picture of the drama of Israel at a national level. Chaos. Sadness. Infighting. Hating. bitterness. That's the situation that we are introduced to. So in your outline, just quickly have a look. I've written the scenes, settings, and characters. We are going into what we would call narrative reading, all right? So when you do narrative reading, you've got to just get yourself a little bit orientated, and you've got to realize that now you can't just read it straight out of the passage. It's not kind of statements of truth. It is stories that are being told. So there are settings. So let me quickly just show you the settings. The story starts with Elkanah and his family at Ramah, all right? Then the setting changes in verse 3, and it becomes Silo, the place of worship, the centralized place of worship that happens since Judges 18, verse 1. They've made Silo the place of worship. That kind of uh, setting runs all the way through to verse 18. And then you have a change of setting again. Then they go back to Ramah, and then they go back to Silo. Now, that's next week's talk. And then she does all sorts of things at Silo, Silo, and then she goes back to Rama. So the setting changes. So you've got to be aware of the setting when you read. You know know why they taught you these things at school? How to read this. You can read the Bible, right? So that's the setting. There's also scene changes in the settings. All right? Different characters are introduced. Different characters are operating. Different characters are talking. So you've got to use a little bit of your imagination in order for you to color in the story. Does it make sense? But please color in on the, between the lines. Don't make your own lines. Okay? Don't make your own comic or your own picture. There are lines for us, but it's helpful just to start to color in. So you've got to use a little bit of your imagination to try and see what has been told to us in the way the characters are presented, in the way that they talk, what they say and what they don't say. So we're we going to not be able to pick up on all of this stuff. If you really want to get into some of this stuff, come tonight. We'll have a look at some of those interesting little details that set you up if you read it to know something amazing, extraordinary is about to happen, even though it starts in the most obscure place. Small little man of no repute in the land of Ephraim, which means double fruit. So there's a play on names, and we're going to get into all of that. Every one of these names has got an interesting meaning. And if you read them, you actually can get quite excited about what is going on. Very obscure family, and yet they are right bang in the center of God's great plans. So I don't want to spend too much time trying to do all of that. I hope that as we go through it, you will pick up some of the things. I just want to highlight a couple of the important little bits. All right. So, first thing Elkanah is in Rama, not a very important place. He's got two wives, Hannah. Her name means favored or grace. Penina means uh, poo or it means um, flourishing. And Hannah, favored, has got no kids. So how favored is she? And uh, Penina means pull, She's producing them like rabbits. All right? She's just have lots of kids. She's the second wife because the first wife is barren. In those days, it was a right to take a second wife. Uh, that's the setting that you are being told. Very quickly, boom very sad reality that uh, there's somebody who does not have a child and we'll come back to that why that is so particularly sad in this kind of a context all right so that's the simple setting now the story starts chapter uh, verse 3 to 8 this is the first time year after year they tell us that arkana is a very very godly man he doesn't fit the description as we have saw in the end of Judges, and every person did as he saw fit in his own eyes. Elkanah did not do that. Every year, as God has commanded, he takes his entire family, he goes and worships the Silo. He's a very godly man. He's a very faithful man. He's got two wives, and he doesn't play off the one against the other. He actually gives to Penina and to her children her fair share of the meat, because they only eat meat about once a year in those days. You guys are very fortunate. So that Gave her meat and, a, and he gave to Hannah meat. Our Bible says in verse 5, he gave her a double portion. I don't want to get into the detail, not exactly what he's saying. <laughs> Slightly different. He's giving her a special portion but not a double portion because he loves her. And he loves her because God has closed her womb. That's very fascinating. A bit of detail that you are being told. It's the only woman in the entire Bible that we are told that God has closed her womb. There have been many barren women, but this one directly, God has closed her womb. And Alcana does not despise her because of that. He loves her. She is his favorite. That's her name. It's been favored. He loves her. He cares for her. He wants her to love him back. But God has closed her womb, and Alcana accepts it. Erkanah knows this life is full of good and bad stuff that happens. And he does not decide that he will become bitter and resentful and ugly towards his wife because she can't have children. So he cares and he loves her greatly. Every year they go up to Silo to worship at the place that God has said. And we are introduced to two other people, but we only pick them up in chapter 2 a bit later. Hophni and Phinehas. Um, We'll find out a little bit more about them as the story develops. But this is what he's doing every single time they go. He's a very devout man. He's a very faithful man. He's a very caring man. And he is looking after his family uh, to the best that he can. And he accepts the fact that God has sovereignly chosen to not give Hannah any children. He's at peace with it. And he does not allow... When he does not understand God's purposes to affect the way he treats those that are closest to him. Amazing, isn't it? Good example. Great man. Now, the same theological understanding can create the opposite effect. So look with me at verse 5. But Hannah uh, gave a double portion or a special portion uh, because he loved her and the Lord closed the womb. So that tells you. Then look at verse 6. A repeat of exactly the same words. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. So here's Benina. <laughs> Benina is now Hannah's rival. She uses the fact that God has closed them twice. We are told it right after one another that she knows God has closed Hannah's womb. And she uses that as a stick to goad her. You know, like a knife, you know, put it in your, under the short rip, and you just push up, and you turn. It's very nice. They say it's very painful, and that's what she's doing. Oh, favored one, how is it that you, who is the favored one, has got no children? Sad, eh? In fighting. Maybe she feels frustrated because she's the second wife, and, but hey, I've got lots of kids. You, are the favored one, you get nothing maybe God is on my side. I have the right to use that knowledge for my benefit and to break you down. We don't know what's going through on our mind. Use your imagination, but stay in the lines. eh? Think, enjoy the story. Sad, isn't it? Have you ever used something you know about somebody else against them? Yeah. Benina's. Sad, isn't it? And he would keep on doing it until she would cry out bitterly. She would not stop. You know, she's like a jolly three year old. They keep going hang, 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 until you can't handle it anymore. And so the story tells us that this is happening year after year. It doesn't tell us how many years, it just tells us year after year that it is going on. And eventually, Hannah would break down and she would weep and she is distraught. And the question is, why is the favored one not favored by God? Look at verse 8. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? So Elkanah is saying, favored wife, why don't you favor me? Where is the favor for me? But actually, there's a bigger question. Why is the favored one not favored by God? That's her name, isn't it? And what makes it so astounding is that the promise, you can go back, write it down. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 14. God says to Israel, if you go into the land and you are my people, not one of your wives will be barren. They will all produce like rabbits. Here god has closed her womb why does he do that does he not care for her pain year after year after year after year you got to wrestle with that does it does it upset you you've got stuff that you don't understand what god is doing what do you do with it are you weeping are you bitter are you perplexed are you heartbroken Yeah, not so. That's what she's doing. And then the scene changes. Still at Silo, but the scene changes. Verse 9. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Silo, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord. And so suddenly we're introduced to Eli. And it's quite an interesting way in which Eli is depicted. And we're not going to get into all of that. But here are now the two next great characters that are going to play out. So far, Hannah's done nothing. She's just wept and cried and moaned. That's all she's done. She's been passive. Everything has been acted upon her. God closed the womb. Her husband is bugging her to love her more than his children. He doesn't, get, he doesn't understand women. You know. Women love their children much more than their husbands. You know, just accept it. This is how it is. And Penina is on her case. She has been acted upon right through from God through Penina to her husband who's insensitive, though he's trying to be loving, which is what most men do. So girls just give guys a good break. They do try to be sensitive, but they're stupid, and they don't understand these things, but it's fine. Now she is going to act. In the full light of all of this knowledge, she's acting, and what does she do? She goes to God in prayer. She's the only woman of all the women in the bible that we are told were barren that actually talks to god about it most of the women do that funny thing when anything goes wrong they blame their husbands so if you're going to read in genesis about all the women who are barren all of them complain to their husbands give me children or i die and they all tell her hey we can't do this god's job hannah is godly enough to know there's no point taking her frustrations out on elkanah she takes it to the problem she takes it to the one who is causing the problem, and that is God himself. And she says to God, God, you are the Lord of hosts. That means you're almighty, as he says here. You, you've got all the power in the world is at your disposal. I come to you. Now look at verse 11, and she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. Fascinating when you go and take every one of those phrases and to see what she's saying. She comes to God knowing who he is. You are the Lord of hosts. You are the Lord Almighty. I accept that you closed my womb. And I know only you can open it. That's amazing, isn't it? She understands the sovereignty of God very, very clearly. There's no point in trying to talk to the small guys. You go to the top if you've got a problem. She goes to the top. And she says, I am but a servant. Servants in those days are doulos, or slaves. They have absolutely no rights. So she understands who God is, and she understands who she is. I'm a servant. But I ask you, yeah, listen to the language very interestingly, to look upon me and see my misery, see my affliction, and to remember me. Now, again, if you know your Bibles, you'll will be like Pavlov's dog. You'll start salivating when you hear those words. Where did you read about a servant of God who was under affliction and God eventually remembered him. Joseph, yeah. A bit, a bit earlier. A bit, a bit after that, the big one. Israel. In Egypt. They were God's servants. They were complaining for 400 years. Lord, look upon our affliction and remember us. Very weird thing. Oh, so God forget you. No, remember that you promised that you will act on our behalf as you have promised. She's actually making a covenantal promise. God, you, we are your servants. You made promises to us. So now I'm asking you, do it. Do what you have promised to me. You promised that no one of us will be barren. It wasn't me. You said it. So here I am. See my affliction. See my hardship. You are the Lord who knows everything. You can overturn this. You can change this. So please change it. And on top of that, if you answer me, I want what you give me and I'll give it back to you so that you will be glorified. That's very interesting, isn't it? How many times do you ask God for something for yourself? So will you give back to God what you ask Him? Will you change what you're asking? She says, you are the Lord. To you all things belong. If you give me this, I'll give it back to you. Because it's yours in the first place in any case. I surrender my entire life to your purposes and to your glory. Amazing, isn't it? You can learn something about life from Hannah and her prayer. And so here we find Eli. Eli is again, he's a bit obtuse. He's sitting, he's very passive. He, uh, he doesn't know what's going on. He looks at a woman who is in distress and he thinks he's drunk. There will be reasons for that. You'll pick it up in chapter 2. Eli is a bit of a, a problem. We'll see. He's not really a man who can do the job that he was supposed to do. He was the leader, but he wasn't a leader. And so he says to, oh, you drunk woman, because there were lots of drunk women there in those days. He says to put it aside. And she says to him, no, 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 you got me completely wrong. I am pouring out my heart. I mean, here's a priest who's supposed to understand people, and he cannot see when a woman is distraught and when she's drunk. Pretty lame, isn't it? Can you see the difference? He was supposed to see it, but he can't see it. He's not acting as a true priest, but now he kind of engages with her. And she says to him oh i am distressed i'm overwhelmed i'm pouring out my heart and now eventually he does something that he was supposed to do all along verse 17 go in peace and may the god of israel grant you what you have asked of him notice carefully go in peace great promise of god for his people i will bring you peace which is not what we say a lack of conflict peace is the positive availability of fullness of life shalom Go in peace. Go in the fullness of the God of Israel, the God who's made all those promises to Israel. May he actually grant you your wish. Because God always reacts to those who come to him on the basis that he is God. And he always fulfills his word for his people, for those who come to him for that very reason. And so Eli actually gets it right. Um, Probably by default, but he does get it right. Good news, isn't it? He says to her, go, and may God actually, he doesn't even know what you asked. He doesn't even inquire. She just says, I'm pouring out my heart, I'm distressed, I'm distraught. And he says, may you go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. So we'll see later, as the story develops, how all of these little bit of information is important. And so she goes, and she says, I know God has heard me. I poured out my heart before him. I know who he is. I trust that he will do what is right. I can now eat, and her face lights up, and she's happy. And then, you have a change of setting. They get up in the morning, they worship, they go back to Rama. Alkana sleeps with his wife, and she is not pregnant because of that. She's pregnant because the Lord remembers her. God can bring life out of death. God can bring new life where there's no life by simply a word and here is exactly what happens and she gives birth to samuel and she names him uh, uh she names him samuel and it says the writer then because i asked the lord for him very interesting that little play on words there samuel sounds like very close to Saul, the first king of israel But we'll pick that up later a little bit. Samuel simply means, Saul means asked, and Samuel means asked of God. And there's a big difference between those two understandings. And there we start to play on the words of who do you ask when life does not seem to make sense? Where do you go? Do you ask God or do you ask around? All the people around you. When are we going to get a better government? When are you going to be a better wife? When are you going to be a better husband? When are you going to be better children? All sorts of demands we ask when life does not make sense. We tend to ask horizontally. Samuel means I've asked vertically. God, you decide. You are the one that I ask of, and you remembered me. You fulfilled all the promises. And God brings about the promise that he made in Deuteronomy 7, verse 14, and he brings it to fruition in Hannah's life. You've got a right to do it, and you've got a right not to do it. I ask you, please, in mercy and in kindness and in grace, as I acknowledge it, do it. And he does it, as he's promised. If you seek me, you'll find me. If you knock, it'll be open for you. So what do we make of all of this? Very briefly. That the Lord of hosts, right there at the bottom of your outline, He cares, but He cares in obscure ways. If you want to solve the problems of this world, for one thing you must not do is to go to the powerful and the strong and those with connections. God loves to turn things upside down. God goes to a no man With no family to a barren woman and he is about to change the history of Israel and the history of the world through her. Do not be surprised that God does not think like you think about how to solve the problems of life. He cares in a very upside down way. He uses the most obscure people to bring about his purposes. I'm sure you're already ringing in your head, this, in the future, there are two other women that bear children. One is also barren. Her name was Elizabeth. And she gave birth to John the Baptist. And Mary, she wasn't barren, but she had no sex, so she couldn't have children. And she bears, this, this little teenage girl from nowhere who gives birth to God's king. That will save the world where do you look when life doesn't seem to make sense god is upside down he does not follow the natural patterns of our thinking and our expectation he says when you come to me on my terms you will see that i can do the impossible And so here, the story is looking forward, and we know where the story is going. We know we're in Samuel. We know the fulfillment of God's purposes for this world comes through a person, a man, born of a virgin from a little town from nowhere, and he's going to turn the world upside down. Tell me seriously, where are you looking today for the problems to be solved in this world? Have you discovered God's upside-down, obscure way of saving the world? through jesus christ do you worship jesus do you know that he is the one that god said this is my son with him i'm well pleased he is the one who will do this and he'll do it in a upside down way he will simply come and he will bring a conviction about in your heart he will not necessarily change anything else where is your where's your kingdom i don't do things the way you do things My way is so much better than your way. Because I install my king, and what my king does to bring his kingdom, he changes human hearts. He does not change human situations at first. Have you experienced that change, bumping into him? Can you see in the bigger picture of where this thing is going, That the only one who can wipe away your tears and your frustration and your anguish and your bitterness and your sadness is God's very small, almost insignificant, by human eyes king named Jesus Christ. Who do you think is going to wipe away your tears? Who's going to give you hope? Who has conquered sin and death? But God's small, almost backwaters Israel—I mean, middle of nowhere—king. Do you know that? Have you understand that? Have you do you experience that? That you can bring all your heartache and pain and frustration to Him, and He says, "My Son is the way that I care for this world." Have you seen it? Or are you expecting something else? You know, remember John the Baptist? The guy who said this is the one who was supposed to come here. Remember what he did at one stage? He got a bit confused, I guess like us. He came to Jesus and says, "Um, Are you the one? Because things haven't really changed around here very much. Actually, I'm in jail and it said you'll come to set the captives free. Are you the one? That was supposed to come. Or should we expect someone else? You see how fascinating this is? When you're down and depressed, where do you go? Do you go to God's King, Jesus Christ? When people come to you around you and they complain and moan and groan about this life, where do you send them? What do you tell them? Let's vote for a new president. Is that what you tell them? that what you hope for? that what your hope is? Really? See, God does things always upside down in bizarre ways. And this is the pattern that is now set for us in the rest of Samuel. You'll see this thing happening over and over and over and over. God does not do what you think he should do. But when you humble yourself under his hand, you will discover that his way is always better. And he turns things upside down. Slowly, most of the time. But perfectly in his son. The Lord of hosts cares, but he does it in ways that doesn't fit with our expectations. Have you come to love God for being like that? Do you, like Hannah, worship him for being like that? Or would you rather have a different God? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that this story that we see here is indeed a small picture of a much bigger reality. So often when we look with the eyes We cannot perceive and conceive of your glory and your splendor in Christ Jesus. Yeah, Lord, I get so distressed and frustrated and I so long for the fullness of your kingdom to come that I often despair even and wonder where are you and what are you doing and why aren't you changing this world? And again and again and again, a passage like this reminds me You are not like me i must not try and recreate you in my image you have made me in your image and so lord i pray that you will help us to look deep into our hearts to see what are the things that we cause us to cry to have grief to have fear to have worry and help us lord to discover where does our heart go and what do we say do we accuse you do we become bitter towards you do we hate you do we say i'm not going to talk to you anymore because you don't listen you don't do what i ask you oh lord we pray that you may help us to work right through our pain until we can see the glory of your son who himself took upon himself all our pain so that he may set us free so help us, Lord, to see the glory and the splendor of how Christ is the culminating reality of all your power, all your care, and all the upside-down way in which you do things. In Christ we see power, goodness, no sin, no selfishness, no self-pity, no self-sorrow. We see the ability to overcome sin the ability to overcome unfairness the ability to overcome false accusation even the ability to overcome all the sin of the world poured out on him he's taken it all in himself and he's conquered he did not give in he did not give up he did not retaliate he did not accuse he did not hate he did not become bitter Oh, Lord, what a Savior. What an upside-down Savior you are. What a glorious God you are. So won't you help us to readjust, maybe again, or maybe for the first time this morning, our actual understanding of the way that you show power and you do it actually in weakness. And you show wisdom in what we would call foolishness. And you are the only one, Lord, who can actually overcome evil by taking it on and allowing it to vent its full fury against you. You conquered it. Thank you that Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior. And thank you that you're the God that cares in such a weird, upside-down way. So, Lord, we want to worship you for who you are. And we want to praise you for who you are. And we want to ask you to open the eyes of our hearts that we may see what you are doing in our very lives to bring us to our knees so that you may give us the gift that is greater than anything we could ever achieve. To you belong glory and praise and thanks, and we do this in Jesus' name. Amen.